0: Okay. Hey, everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the boundless show Lisa Anderson here with you and uh, always great to be with you and to give you a little preview of what's coming up for our inbox a listeners wondering how someone can have healthy friendships with the opposite sex uh, specifically coming out of past sexual sin so how to do that well one of our counselors John Thorrington, is going to weigh in on that and then for our culture we're going to hear part two of our conversation with Dallas and Jerry Jenkins Dallas is the creator and director 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 of the TV series The Chosen, and his dad, Jerry, has now, for Focus on the Family, written a book, uh, the first book in a series on that. And so uh, if you're a fan of the show or of Jerry Jenkins, you're going to definitely want to stay tuned. Okay, well, here we are for our roundtable, and we thought it would be good to have a good conversation and a thorough conversation on what it looks like to help friends through a hard time. Now, we can all think on the past year and how this was hard and there were plenty of opportunities, <laughs> but even like pandemic aside, I think just life throws things at us. And sometimes they're like mini crises. It might just be an acute situation you're in, or it might be a, a longer stretch of something or a, a more um, ingrained situation like dealing with anxiety or depression or what it means to be, you know, someone who's feeling spiritually oppressed. And where how do we show up for a person in the midst of that? And so I'm very excited to welcome Loanne, Kelly, and Yale here. Hey, guys. Hi. Hello. Okay, good to have you. Um, So we were talking a little bit beforehand of, you know, we've obviously been... Hopefully, givers of help, but also receivers of help. And sometimes one for us is harder than the other. You know, it's like you're usually either good at giving, but then receiving, you're like, no, I'm cool, you know, and yet you're falling apart. Um, <laughs> or else you're that person that's just like, I need everyone to, you know, rescue me or I'm always in a crisis or whatever. Um, but then you don't show up for others or don't know how to. So we want to kind of parse some of that out. But give us, let's just start talking around a few examples examples of situations that you've walked through or that you've been able to walk through with someone else that would kind of put a focus on where we're going to go in the conversation
1: um well for me something that comes to mind as far as helping others a recent situation a few months ago i had a dear friend reach out and share that um the day before she found out that her husband was having an affair um he actually came to her and confessed and so um They decided to work on their marriage. They decided to stay together and pursue counseling and all that. And um, she asked me if I would be her accountability partner through the process. And so, um, you know, when when someone that you love shares that with you, you have these feelings rise up. You have your Mm. opinions come. (laughs) And Mm. um, it's just so important to be so mindful of the words that you speak because your words carry so much weight and especially in a situation like that where someone is coming to you for help for advice they're so impressionable and so um my husband actually reminded me he said hey just be so mindful of what you say because not only is marriage such a sacred thing but um you know we need to steward the opportunity well to speak into somebody else's life when someone gives you mm-hmm. the privilege of speaking into their life and so um that was just a really good um, lesson for me. Something I'm learning to do well is um, that's a weighty thing, and um, we need to steward it well. Mm, that's good. Mm-hmm.
2: I think um, what comes to mind when I think of helping someone else, and I think, Lisa, you hit it on the head at the beginning, sometimes it's a lot harder to ask for help than to give help. In a situation where I was giving help some years ago, a A coworker friend of mine, his 40-year-old wife, was dying from cancer, and she'd been fighting it for a while, and he wanted to go to the oncologist and ask him if it was time to let her go and to stop treatment, Mm -hmm. and he didn't want to take her, and so he asked if I would go and be another pair of ears listening to what the doctor said. So I went, um, sat, didn't say anything, took some notes, and on the way home, as he was debriefing what he heard the doctor say, it was pretty upbeat. Um, hopeful and when he grew quiet I asked him if he wanted to know what I heard the doctor say and and he said mm-hmm. sure and what I heard the doctor say was it was time to let her go mm-hmm. uh, and it, it was hard for him to believe that that was it, it, what mm-hmm. is what the doctor said and, and I wasn't trying to be a downer but i, I he asked me to go for those pair of ears. And a few days later, things went sideways with his wife and her health. She ended up going into hospice and he flew her to her uh, family home in North Carolina to pass away in her family home. And mm-hmm. a couple of days later, he called me after they arrived and he asked if I would fly there and be there uh, for the duration. So I jumped on a plane. I went and I sat for about four days with him and his wife and her family uh, sat by her, sang songs to her, held her hand, moved away when the family came over to the bed um, until she passed away. And everything in me was saying, I wish you'd call somebody else <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. because that was really hard, but I knew I I needed to be there.
0: Yeah. And that's a good, you know, Yale, you bring up a good point in that. And then, Loanne, I want you to weigh in, too, with your example, um, in that we... We often want to think that, okay, I might be asked to do something or show up or be somewhere, but I just really hope it's not going to be hard or I hope it's not mm-hmm. going to ask too much mm-hmm. of me. And it, it almost always does. I mean, the whole fact is that you are giving – and so you have to give out of something. <laughs> you're going to give time. You're going to give resources. You're going to give attention. You're going to give emotional capital. Um, and so I think it's okay to understand that going into it of like, this isn't like, let's all just be amazing and be the the superhero here, but it's not going to affect me or it's not going to cost me anything. Um, and I know, Loanne, you mm-hmm. kind of, you you and I have talked and you kind of tend to want to be in that superhero role of, <laughs> let me... Let me fix this situation and tell you exactly what needs to happen here.
3: Yes, I am by nature a fixer. And if you don't know how to fix it, let me come and do it for <laughs> you.
1: <laughs> and a mama bear. <laughs> well, <laughs> and took Get- good care of me when I started working. Here. Aww. Aww. <laughs>
3: Thank you, Kelly. Um, one thing God's really been working on me for the last probably 12 years or so is just to not take that fixer role and use it as the role of the Holy Spirit.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, to come alongside someone, like Kelly said, truly is such a privilege and something that we should never take lightly. Um, but at the same time, to always be having it in my mind, the Lord's just constantly, okay, is what you're about to say, are you trying to tell them what to do? Are you asking them what they need from you. Mm -hmm. And even this morning, I was having to do it with one of my daughters, just a really tough situation that she's in. And that was just constantly there. And I'm just so thankful for the Holy Spirit doing that. It's not because I do it perfectly, um, but, you know, to just have that filter there of, okay, Lord, what is the next thing that you're either wanting me to say or do, or am I just to be there? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I don't ever want to be Job's friend Mm -hmm. but i do have a very dear friend at our church that for about the last 15 years um she and i we we are the ones that we really truly are raw and honest with each other that at times when we shouldn't be laughing about the situation we will laugh about the situation because otherwise we're going to fall apart. But um, it's like in my family, like X will happen. And I'll talk to Lori and she'll be like, oh, okay. And next thing you know, X happened in her family. And then she'll come in, she'll be like, oh, and you won't believe what happened. And then I'm like, oh, few Days later, hey Lori, you won't play, and so it's like we're on this continuous path of like what happens to me later, similar things happen to her, and vice versa. And so it's not a one upmanship by any means, but sometimes we just have to laugh about it. It's like, are you kidding? You know, it's like, how far are we going to take this? Yeah. But, um, we truly have walked through the mud and the mire with each other um with prodigal children with difficulties just sometimes marriage hits difficult spots even when the marriage is intact there's just those seasons but um she and I both have agreed that neither one of us will ever shy away from saying i'm here for you yeah. what can i do and it is really it's it's really become an iron sharpening iron and i'm just so thankful for her in my life even though these difficulties are not at all what we would rather be facing.
0: Yeah. This reminds me of another trap that I think it's easy to fall into. And I know, I mean, I want to go there a lot. And I feel like God's really worked on me in this. But it's the idea of like, let me assess the situation and see how, quote unquote, fill in whatever word you want to use, how worthy this person is of my help, how, mm. you know, I don't want them to become dependent on me. I don't want to We start making judgments about what kind of help they need. at what season am I the one to give it, you know, and all of a sudden it's like it's coming with stipulations. And so like I have a a dear, dear friend who walked through an extended season of depression. Not being someone who has ever felt a depressive, you know, I have I have not struggled with depression in that sense. It was like I, I still remember doing this, being like, okay, you know, this is, I'm gonna hang in here up to a point, and then it's gonna start being like, okay have all the stuff you're not supposed to do? Have you have you surely prayed about this? Have you gotten (laughs) help? Have you do you need to be on medication? Have you tried counseling? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Again, what Loanne was saying about fixing. And I finally realized it was so crazy, because um, now that she's kind of beyond that season, at this point, she can look back on it and say, Lisa, those times when you were just silent, or when you would say, let's pray right now. And let's, and she said, you would put your hand on my shoulder and just start praying and allowing the spirit and God himself to intervene and not your own wisdom, but just being like, ah, you know, and it was like, uh, that had to have only been the Holy Spirit because it would not have occurred to me naturally to come up with Mm -hmm. that as a quote unquote solution for the moment. And so- do you guys ever find yourself in that trap of trying to play, or you play favorites about who really needs help, who doesn't, how you're going to show up or not, or you're going to hold someone at arm's length? Ever? No, never. No. <laughs> uh, no. We've got
1: it figured out. Yeah, there.
0: no. Uh, Let's all ask Yale for something. <laughs> Let's all make Yale help us with something and see how he does. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: Uh, I, I do think there's some discernment in there, but I think the be- the most important aspect of helping somebody else goes way before you actually do something it's the listening part it's listening mm-hmm. listening and really hearing what the need is and and perhaps praying about and wondering about how can i meet that need but without the listening part that goes before mm-hmm. you you can be stumbling all over the place scratching the wrong itch uh so you have to listen really really well to hear what they're asking for mm-hmm. that you can maybe provide
1: mm-hmm. yeah yeah and when i think of mentors that i've had in my life that have um had such a positive role in my life um they have a few things in common and i think of different situations that i was struggling with and i would bring them to my mentor and i would talk and talk and talk and they would listen and whether it was grief or frustration or confusion they would just sit there with me and and say i'm so sorry i'm so sad for you and before you go into fixing mode or questions mode just to be with somebody in their pain, in their confusion, and not rush it. And absolutely, as Loanne brought up, the Holy Spirit, we need to be asking the Holy Spirit, you know, Lord, show me what I'm supposed to say. Show me what I'm not supposed to say. Mm -hmm. And um, asking questions to get them really thinking before we just spew off our list of practical advice because we've got it, you know. So um, I think that balance is so important, you
0: yeah. Give me uh, give me an idea of, I, I would love to put some tips out there for folks who are kind of like, how do I do this well? And I want to do it on both ends of the spectrum. So giving help and receiving help. What are your best, just things that you've learned, tactics, strategies? Um, for example, I had to be a receiver in my season of caregiving with my mom. And it was, you know, and there were times when I asked for help and no one showed up. And that was really hard. But there were times when people, again, there were some people who walked the whole season with me. There were some people who showed up in moments. And it's actually really cool that... that Loanne is on this panel. Cause one thing Loanne did was got a group of ladies at work together to come and just clean my house one Saturday. And it was like, you just get out of the house. We're going to come in and we're going to clean it. Cause with, um, with mom around, I always had her so I couldn't get out and do things. And then it was kind of like piecemeal, like just trying to figure out how to fit in errands and tasks on the side. And so that was such a huge blessing for me of just like showing up in that moment. So I would say, you know, being the person who's willing to say, okay, here are a couple needs that I have and put them out there. And, you know, sometimes people won't show up and that's hard, but people will. But also on the other end of it, being the person who's like, I know that you're going through a hard season. Here are one, two, three different things that I could do for you right now. I would love to do, here's my time, you know, giving them an option of stuff to pick from is also
3: super helpful. Well, with what you've said, Lisa, um, I, I have discovered through the years as well that instead of just saying, you know, hey, let me know if there's anything you need. A lot of times people in that hurting situation, whatever it is, they can't think of that. Mm -hmm. They don't know whether it's someone, um, I have two daughters that really struggle with deep, dark depression. I mean, even on their best days, as they've said, things are very gray and, um, and there have been so many times that I've been like, well, what can I do to help you? And they don't know. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times it's like, can we take the girls? They're our two little granddaughters. Would it help if we have them over at our house for a while just to give you that breathing space that you need? Because the anxiety just gets so overwhelming just trying to even think of what to fix for dinner. Um, but our, our other daughter, it's like, you know what? could Could I just do a load of laundry for you because she also has some physical difficulties that make um, those kinds of things just physically painful, and so it's having that knowing them well enough to hopefully provide suggestions that are truly helpful. And other times it's just throwing the arrows out there and see where do they land. You know, it's maybe it is somebody at church that, you know, it's come out on the prayer chain. It's like, well, I don't really know them, but I know that they're a mom and a dad and they've got, you know, X, Y, or Z kids, you know, and just toss back and say, hey, can we provide a meal? Is there a Saturday that we could come and bring a cleaning crew? Some people would be very uncomfortable with that, but that takes it to the other end of the spectrum. Sometimes we are uncomfortable, but we need to let people serve us. Um, I'm one that is very hard to accept the serving part of it. Let me serve you until, you know, I'm so tired I can't go anymore. But you want to come over and bring me a meal or something? No, it's okay. (laughs) i got stuff in the pantry, you know. But, um, you know, to to face that uncomfortable in your own life when somebody tries to serve you, because we don't want to steal their blessing either. I was
0: just going to say one of the best things I ever heard on that was someone who confronted me at some point when I'm sure someone was offering to help. And I was like, no, I've got it. I've got it. And they were like, Lisa, when you do that, you are taking away the opportunity for someone to be a blessing in a way that God is asking them to be a blessing. Mm -hmm. And so don't deny them that opportunity.
1: Yeah, because they're being obedient and that Mm -hmm. they've felt a call from the Lord to be generous or serve you and I think when you are the giver and the gift is accepted, sometimes it's it blesses the giver more than the receiver to be able to bless someone in that way. Um, Loanne, what she said about offering specific things, I'll speak to it from the receiving end. The last few years, I've had an array of health issues, and so um, that has made me kind of high maintenance <laughs> mm-hmm. at times, very needy, but I don't like to ask for help. I'd rather just be alone, figure it out, I'll tough it out, I'll be okay. And the people that know me well, um would like start going out of their way to do things for me and I thought this is really uncomfortable. I'd rather not. I'd rather just do it on my own. And I think that's pride. And um like I will I will have friends who will have us over for dinner or um if it's a holiday meal with family and people will say, "Hey, we know you can't eat any of this stuff. What can we cook for you?" And I'm like you don't understand, I have a list of thirty six foods I can't eat, like really, you don't you don't want to mm. do this. It'll be easier if I just bring my own food. And they insist, no, 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 And when I uh, let them serve me in that way, it is such a blessing, and I get to enjoy meals with people and um over Christmas, my we were gonna fly home to Texas for Christmas. My sister called me a few days before she said, "Hey. Mom and I really want to make sure that you feel good on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. And we know that getting IV therapy sometimes helps you with energy and different stuff. Could we treat you to an IV? Which, (laughs) what a random thing. But in my world, that is something that Mm -hmm. blesses me. And it just brought me to tears, the fact that they had thought about it weeks out and um, gone out of their way to do that for me. And so it absolutely blessed me. But I know that it blessed them, too.
2: I think um, an important factor in this is where in the need cycle a person is because you don't want to provide something that isn't needed or wanted at a particular time. If it's a crisis moment, it's the beginning of the of, of the need or that they might have or that I might have. Um, that's going to be a different response than if it's months into it for something that's ongoing. We had a situation a few years ago where one of our daughters, we were living in uh, Florida. She was out in college in in California, and, and the phone rang, um, my wife's phone rang, and it was somebody informing us that our daughter just got hit by a car um, mm. on, her, on her way to church on her bicycle, um, and um, they couldn't tell us any other information, and we were 3,000 miles away, uh, and we didn't know if she was alive or dead or what was going on. Um, And so that was going to take us time, and we could get information from the hospital because she was over 18, and they won't disclose any information. Mm -hmm. She was registered as a John Doe, even though she had ID. Um, And so we have friends living two hours away from where she was. We got on the phone. They picked up. We told them what was going on, and 15 minutes later, they were in the car driving Mm -hmm. to the hospital to see how our daughter was and to communicate with us in that scenario, we needed help now, you know, as opposed to the recovery of our, our daughter had to go through and the kind of help we needed during then.
4: Hmm.
0: That's good. Would you ever say, um, you know, what what does that look like uh, to think through what an appropriate response or an appropriate level of health looks like? And I know, you know, Yale, you're a counselor, you know, kind of, you know, is is there ever a time when it's not good, to step in and offer help, or how do you determine that? I mean, some people are so you know, fixer mentality or whatever, they just want to go in and not only will I help you with this, but here are these other things in your life that need cleaning up. And <laughs> let me start on those too. And uh, what does it look like to have an appropriate balance?
2: Yeah, I think that's a real challenge, especially if you're a counselor, especially if you have a gift of service or hospitality. That's just part of your DNA. You want to help and, and, it, and it hits all the right cords within you. And so I think the question you know, a person needs to ask, am, you know, am I helping or, or am I enabling? What I want, especially on the long-term type of help that is needed, um, we can become enablers, which then allows them to stay in the problem by just putting a Band-Aid over it or trying to fix it, as opposed to really meeting some real uh, resources and needs that they have. So we have to figure that out uh, and discern, am I being a, a real help, meeting real needs, or am I just being an enabler to let them continue in the lifestyle, the choices that they have, made, have happened to them?
0: Yeah. It also makes me think, kind of as we wrap up here, how it would serve everyone so well, including ourselves, if we, in times of non-crisis, thought through, what are the ways that we really show up well? And how can what are we bringing to the table? Because for me... It is often not, I'm not the number one meal go-to person. Like if I'm the person that needs to provide a meal, I can. But as a performance-driven person, I can tell you right now that I am getting anxious about like I'm thinking I'm going to have to do a roast chicken with like vegetables on the side, like something super. <laughs> and I am so stressed out by that. And then I have friends who are just like, oh, my goodness, I'm already making 12 meals today. So let me just do that. And I'm just like, why is this <laughs> so easy for you? But for me, I'm like, I've, I've built margin in my life. I'm single. I have my schedule pretty well laid out. I had a neighbor who had had hip surgery and needed. And I'm like, girl. I'm going to go grab some Chick-fil-A on the way home from work. I'm going to come over and sit with you and hear about your day and take your dog for a walk and do. And that for me was so life giving and so, quote unquote, easy and awesome. And I didn't have to make a roast chicken and, you know, (laughs) root vegetables and whatever to go with it. And, you know, but it was chicken cultivate. my (laughs) That's my kind of chicken. chicken. I didn't have to cultivate my own garden to get this thing done. I mean, so it just it's like, yeah make sure you build in your margin and know. And, and again, even to Kelly's point, like, think of how am I as a listener? How can I actively think of that next conversation I'm going to have and be the person who shows up and can stay calm and quiet and be that person who gives presence? Um, I think that's so great for us to all think through on the front end to be able to do that so that, you know, when the time comes, we're we're appropriate in that space. Um Anyway, oh, there's so much more that we could do, but we got to wrap it. Um, thank you guys so much for doing that. I I just have so many ideas in my own head and people who've done that so well for me. And now I want to thank them. And so, hey, do that too today, people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the people that have, have shown up for you and uh, the ways that you've been able to then use their example to reciprocate or, or pay it forward uh, in that sense. It's a It's a big deal, and it's called being the church and being the body right. of Christ, and we can do it. So... Thanks, you guys, for sure. weighing in. Thank,
4: Thank you. you, Lisa. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Well, hey everyone! We are back for this week's culture segment uh, for the Boundless Show, and if you listened to last week, you know that we are in a conversation with Jerry Jenkins and Dallas Jenkins. Uh, Dallas is a creator and director of the series *The Chosen*, and now Jerry, his dad, is writing a series of novels. *The Chosen* first novel title. Jerry?
5: I have his. called you by name.
0: Okay. And last week, and I'm, heads up, everyone, if you didn't listen to last week's show, listen to that, um, to this interview, because this is a continuation of that conversation. And we, I want to pick up um, where you left off last week, Jerry, in talking about this scene, um, first represented in the series, and now you're uh, describing it in detail in the book itself, of Mary, um, basically, I mean, let's just be honest, sitting in a bar... Um, (laughs) she is not doing well. Uh, she is literally demon possessed, oppressed. Um, she is, you know, she's nothing in, in society. And it's so fascinating to me because in both watching that scene and reading it in the book, it's like, how many of us feel like that is us? I mean, feel like we, you know, we may not be on paper screwed up like that but we're screwed up. I mean, we are, we are messes, um, and many of us feel. I mean, we may fight with our own thoughts. We may fight with our own pasts, um, our shame, and talk to us. I mean, that really gripped you last week, Jerry, when you were recounting writing that. Why is that such a pivotal message for a generation of people today who are struggling with identity in that sense
5: yeah when i i mentioned too that part of the fun of being a novelist is you get to be the characters mm-hmm. and so in this scene you've got a, a bartender a guy who's sympathetic to lilith he thinks that's her name mm-hmm. she's been mary's been hiding behind this name and um and you've got lilith or mary and then you've got jesus so at different times i'm each of those characters mm-hmm. and i can Uh, empathize with Saul, trying to help his friend, Saul the bartender. And um, I, as I've said, it's hard to identify with Jesus because he's perfect, but he's also compassionate toward her. Um, But the beauty of that scene to me is that he knows who she is. He knows everything about her. She has no idea who he is. And when she realizes that this is her redeemer, Mm. it changes everything.
0: Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Well, and it's so, again, I I just think even in in reading that scene and, again, seeing it in the show, that whole idea of like, for those that are, you know, the chosen, for those that are part of the family of God, He loves us as much on our worst day as on our best. And the whole idea of like, that is the gospel and the grace of the gospel is that that is what He does and what He gives to us and imparts to us. That we could not conjure up for ourselves. It's a big you, deal. You realize,
5: I think, in that scene, and it's well, it's so beautifully done on screen too, is that she didn't do anything to earn that. Mm-hmm. She she could have turned over a new leaf every day of the rest of her life, and she she came to Jesus as she was. In fact, she didn't even do it voluntarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, he approached her and called her by her name. Yeah. Um, that's grace. Yeah. And boy, that's what we want to identify with. Mm-hmm. I hear so much from young people. i am served on the board of a couple of Christian colleges, and they tell me that more and more kids come to college with so much baggage and so much anxiety mm-hmm. uh, that they can't even, can't even uh, fu- fill all the appointments that are needed for counselors mm-hmm. uh, from day one mm-hmm. because they are searching for who they are and what they're about and why are they here, and, and these are Christian kids coming to study the Bible, yeah, and and here's the answer. Yeah, Jesus is always the answer.
0: Yeah. Okay, Dallas, let's start with you on this one. This is another probably common question, but I think one that's a, a matter of curiosity for a lot of people. Looking at some of the other characters uh, in the series that you flesh out a great deal, and we feel like, you know, like you said, oh my goodness, you know, Peter, married, now we got to know his wife. <laughs> you know, you feel like you know these people. Who is the character in the series that you most identify with, and why?
6: Well, this, is an, this may sound like a, 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 a you know an easy answer. Or... Are
0: you going to say Jesus?
6: No. Yeah. Um, okay, thank yeah, you, because yeah. that would no, be that very would...
0: awkward. I'd have to yeah. confront you. And... Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, this wouldn't be airing if, it, if I ended up saying. I <laughs> mean, because that. that's who I identify with. Right, right, so right. I'm just saying, yeah. I didn't yeah. want you to take my answer. Yeah, okay. good,
6: good. <laughs> um, but I, I really, I really mean this. Uh, I, I really can't think of a character that stands out because when we're writing it, you really are trying to put a piece of yourself into all of the characters and you're finding the connection, um, with all of them. And, um, I really do, even though I'm not Matthew, for example, who we portray as, as, uh, being on the Asperger's or autism spectrum. I mean, I can identify with that as having a daughter who's autistic and having a lot of experience in that area. Uh, Simon Peter, I identify as being a I'm a passionate guy, and the marriage that we portray in season one, um, the relationship is has some similarities with my wife and me. Um, but so while I can't identify with the totality of any one character, the specific scenes, the scenarios we put them in, some of the ways that they they approach things are are rooted in our experience, my my, my experience, uh, my study of the brain, my study of humanity, um, all of those things. Come into play, which is why I think that people, one of the most consistent comments we get about the show is it feels human, it feels authentic, mm-hmm. it feels like uh, a, a viewer is saying I identify with this person, I identify, that's me, that was sitting in, in, the, in the bar, maybe I wasn't demon oppressed or maybe I wasn't even struggling with alcoholism, but I can identify with Mary's vice and her... Her pain and her depression. Mm-hmm. Um, I can identify with Nicodemus as a person who's been a believer in God his whole life, but is now experiencing something new and is not sure what to do with it, and um, is being faced with a choice to give up his his life mm-hmm. uh, to to follow Jesus. And a lot of people can identify with that. So, um, I really do find similarities and connections to each of the characters because we're, we're, we're writing them. So there's no way to get around that. So yeah. I don't want to give a kind of a pat answer, but there isn't really one character Picking that... the
0: favorite child. It's yeah, hard. It, really, it really is. <laughs> That's really what it well, feels like. Well, then you like. do kind of have to like get into their heads yeah. so yeah. extensively. All right, Jerry, what would be your answer?
5: Well, I do love the Mary character and, and the Simon mm-hmm. character and the Matthew character. I have to say, I probably most identify with Nicodemus because our ages are similar. Hmm. And um, and I love the fact that the actor who played uh, him too was so emotional in that scene. Uh, it happens when I was eight years old.
6: And the scene with, with Jesus, where they meet under cover of night, and yep. the whole John chapter three scene. Yep.
5: Right. When I was eight years old, I was uh, in the hospital with rheumatic fever, and my mother took that opportunity to to help me memorize John three, hmm. and so for that, you know, to you know go. Decades later, and see my son bring that to life on screen was pretty moving. But to hear Eric, the actor, talk about that and and apologize to Dallas for for being too emotional in the scene, Hmm. and Dallas said it could have been that way, so let it happen. Um, That really brought that character home to me. I mean, um, you know, being raised in the church, you know, I'd hate to think I'm Pharisaical, but you know, you learn all the rules, you know what to do and what not to do. And here's this person saying, "You missed the whole. You missed the boat." Here's what it's really all about. Um, so I really identify with with Nicodemus.
0: Yeah. Well, let's hop back into the present day because I want to ask you both. You know, again, here we are talking to thousands and thousands of young adults, twenty somethings, thirty somethings, who are like, "Okay, well." it's easy for these guys to say because now they're like successful and they're just like making movies and writing books and doing all this stuff and hanging out with cool people. And I'm just like working in this bank and trying to pay my bills. And I like how you tell the story, um, Dallas, of, you know, you've done projects before and you had a couple projects that you felt were pivotal in your career in being Very disappointing times, very uh, trying times professionally, just feeling like, uh, do I need to check out and be doing something else? Um, Talk to us about that. And then, you know, and Jerry, you too, misses disappointments. Like, how do you wrestle with, is this really what I'm called to be doing? Like, or should I... What if I missed my calling? What is God telling me to do? The angst around that.
6: Yeah, I mean, this story that of The Chosen and how it came to be is something that I wish, or the lessons that I learned from it is something I wish I would have heard when I was in my mm-hmm. early 20s, you know, because uh, I could have saved myself a lot of frustration, I'm sure. But I... I uh, had this movie project called The Resurrection of Gavin Stone, which came out on, uh, it was released in theaters on January 20th, 2017, which I'll never forget because it was inauguration day. Mm. Um, and it was also the day where everything fell apart for me in my career. Um, this is a movie, I achieved my dream of having multiple big time Hollywood production companies financing and producing the project that I was really passionate about. They were excited about it, they were planning to do more movies with me. Um, and these were big time production companies. And, uh, and yet, the, the, even though they were financing and producing it, I, I, the content was still mine. It was still very much uh, the gospel. And so everything, I, I had everything that I had kind of hoped for. And then it came out and it was a complete financial bomb. Like, it, and we knew within just a couple hours that it was. And so I'm home alone with my wife, crying and praying and confused and saying, Essentially, like I guess this isn't for me. I mean, I've been doing trying to do this for for over 15 years and um, Maybe I'm not supposed to do movies anymore I mean this you know in just a couple hours I went from being a director with a very bright future to being a director with no future and uh, It was in that moment that um, God really impressed on my wife's heart very explicitly the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and this is a story that I think not only influenced my career and kind of helped birth the chosen, but it's also kind of influenced, I think, the content of the show itself. And what we saw when we were reading the story of the feeding of the 5,000, when God kind of pointed my wife to that, we noticed a few things we hadn't noticed before, even though we've heard the story many times. And one of which was that Jesus knew exactly what was needed in that moment. So in fact, not only did he know, but in, in many ways, it was his fault. The fact that they were so hungry, the people were so desperate for food was because he'd been talking for three days (laughs) and he had gotten them to the point where the only thing left to satisfy them was a miracle. He brought them to that place. And when the disciples came to Jesus and said, these people are hungry, we need to feed them, we we should send them home. He was like, oh no, we can't send them home. They'll faint along the way because they're so hungry. So he knew exactly what the situation was. And so that allowed us to feel like, okay, this failure doesn't necessarily mean we're outside of God's will. You know, sometimes we feel like that when we fail, Is like, oh, I guess we missed the boat. I guess we did the wrong thing. And that story kind of helped remind us, that okay, maybe, maybe this God's part of this. So we don't know what's next, but we do know that there, there still could be potentially something miraculous. And in fact, a phrase that God gave my wife uh, also was, I do impossible math. She just felt him saying that phrase, you know, felt that on her heart. And we thought that meant, okay, the box office numbers are going to magically turn around this week and we're going to have this amazing testimony. Mm. And uh, they didn't. Nothing happened. And um, so that night at 4 o'clock in the morning, I was writing a 15-page memo, um, analyzing everything that had gone wrong and assigning blame mostly to myself because um, I really didn't want that to happen again. I didn't want this kind of failure to happen again. But I was really trying to surrender. And up on my Facebook message messenger just popped out of the blue from someone I've never met still haven't met them to this day, Um, but we were Facebook friends. And he didn't say hi or hello or heard about the movie or anything. He just said, remember, your job is not to feed the 5,000. It's only to provide the loaves and fish. Mm -hmm. And I honestly wondered for a moment if, like, my computer had been recording what I'd been (laughs) talking about that day. I was just like, and so before I even responded, I just said, or when I responded, I just said, what are you doing up this late at night? He goes, well, I'm in Romania. I'm on a different time zone. I'm here visiting my brother. I said, why did you tell me that? And he said, um, he just goes, uh, it wasn't me. God just wanted me to share that with you. And that moment my life changed forever because, A, I'm a person who does believe it's my job to feed the 5,000. I'm responsible for it all. Um, I have to accomplish things. I have, And I felt responsible for the failure of the movie. But I really got to a point, genuinely got to a point where I was content with, as long as I was in God's will, bringing five loaves and two fish was all I was responsible for, and the rest was up to him. And uh, I really did believe it, and I I bought into it, and I was okay if that meant never making another movie, as long as the loaves and fishes that I did provide were as good and healthy as they could be, so that if God did multiply them, that they could be satisfying. And uh, that's what ultimately led to me doing this short film for my church's Christmas Eve service about the birth of Christ from the perspective of the shepherds, which felt like a significant step down from a Hollywood motion picture. (laughs) This is just a short film for my church. But I put everything I had into it, And uh, that ended up going viral and being the catalyst for this potentially, uh, the uh, the opportunity to do the show, which I'd had this idea for a little while. And uh, the distribution company said we should raise the money through crowdfunding, which I thought was ridiculous. And uh, very, very long story short, that short film that I did for my church ended up generating over $10 million Mm -hmm. in crowdfunding from over 19,000 people, shattering the all-time crowdfunding record. And, And when we hit that number, I remember my wife, uh, sitting next to the computer and we hit this $10 million and she looks to me and there's tears in her eyes and she says, I do impossible math. Mm-hmm. And God was laying it on her heart very explicitly that moment that that's what he meant by that phrase. And uh, so that that philosophy, um, that approach has led, I think, to being surrendered to this whole process and just going, I don't know where we're going to get a boat and fish and, and, and a lake for this miracle uh, fish yeah. scene, but I'm going to trust That God has this, and it's just my job to provide the loaves and fish. And I'm gonna—I don't know how I'm gonna keep doing these seasons. I don't know where the money's gonna come from because this was crowdfunded. But I mean, now the show has exploded, and I'm sitting here with my dad who wrote the Left Behind books. Now he's writing the Chosen (laughs) uh, novelization, and it's all come full circle. um, Just because I think
0: filming the next season.
6: Yeah, and yeah, as I stand before you now, we are officially the first ever multi-season show about the life of Christ because we're doing season two as we speak.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Jerry, any advice for young adults who may be struggling kind of exactly where Dallas was with calling, with trusting God, with their future, um, as one of those older shepherds, as you yeah. <laughs> as you alluded yeah. to yourself as?
5: I'll be the old shepherd. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's, it's where you need to get to. And um, it, it's interesting how God gets us there. Uh, I was a young teenager when I felt that I was supposed to be a writer. I was a professional sports writer at age 14 I couldn't was, wasn't even able to drive my mother had to drive me to the ball games and stuff so I could be a stringer for this local paper but a couple of years after that I, I felt a call to full time Christian work and I remember thinking well, that's the end of the sports writing and I, I'm not going to be a writer I'm going to have to be a pastor or a, a missionary and um, the wife of the speaker that night at camp when I went forward to because I definitely felt this call she said don't be too quick to give up the writing. It may be the vehicle you use to answer the call. Hmm. And so, I was never called to be a writer. I was called to full-time Christian work, and this is simply the vehicle. Um, so I had to get there too, where you, you know, kind of say, you know, my dreams of success or or becoming an author too, um, those are all temporal things that I have no control over anyway. I don't control who buys, how many buy who writes good reviews or not, what kind of royalty checks I get, my success comes from obedience to the call. It takes all the pressure off. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with Dallas with, and I can remember him telling me the story about, You know, I thought Gavin Stone was a fantastic movie, I still do. Mm -hmm. It just was destined to fail for the sake of this project. Mm -hmm. Uh, Get to the place where you can accept failure as a doorway to, to success and not success in the world's view. Of becoming somebody, being known, as you say, people say, "Well, yeah, it's easy for you to say you're, you're somebody." For one thing, we weren't, we aren't anybody. <laughs> but we, at one point, we were both unpublished, unknown. Just obey.
0: Mm-hmm. Good point. All right. Um, okay, a couple just um, kind of fun questions here um, as we finish up. So. But we're we're already thinking about and talking about book two here, Jerry. Clearly, we're uh, on set where season two is being filmed. Any um, any sneak peeks or anticipation we can talk about of what people can look forward to?
6: Well, as we speak, I mean, I'm you know we're a day. Before the week of Sermon on the Mount week, which oh, is where wow. we literally have almost 3,000 people coming to the set, all are going to be COVID tested uh, not only before they left, uh, but, but but the day, the morning of, before they're allowed on the set. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, the, this this season, uh, we we show a little bit of the behind the scenes of the Sermon on the Mount. We even see Jesus writing it and formulating it in his head, and hmm. um, and and then we start. We see the crowds show up. Um, the season, the, so that's for sure a highlight. But the season overall is really about that next step. So season one is Jesus has publicly announced that he's the Messiah. He's got about seven disciples right now, and they're starting to grow. What happens when the fame starts to increase? What hap- both good and bad? He mm-hmm. now there's more people coming to Jesus to be healed, but there's also more people coming to Jesus as enemies. Mm-hmm. What does that do for these for our band of followers who are inexperienced and, and unknown and don't know what to expect, um, you start to see the interpersonal dynamics. We really start to explore um, kind of where where they go next and how they deal with this. And it's not always pretty. Yeah. Um, it's not like Jesus called, so now everything's rosy. Um, for sure, the, the tension starts to ratchet up.
0: Okay. Anything uh, different, like in the feel of uh, filming this season versus the last any lessons learned? or
6: Well, for sure. I mean, I think one is, as we go into season two now, we are a show that has a, a, a huge fan base. And so th- with that comes more pressure, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they're watching everything we do. And we, we really try to, in our YouTube channel, our Facebook channel, our fa- uh, Instagram page, we're giving tons of behind-the-scenes info. But back when we first started, I mean, it was just a few thousand people watching us and interested in what we were going to do next, and and now it's millions. And so that for sure adds kind of a little bit more pressure to it. Um, but at the end of the day, it really is just, you know, when, we're, when our cameras are rolling and, and it's, it's the actors and me. Working on this scene and just trying to make it as great of a scene as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, that's still the same. Um, the, I think the production value is bigger on season two. We filmed the first half in uh, in Utah we, uh, in this incredible Jerusalem set that had been had been built that we had an opportunity to make use of, and now we're on this huge property right now here in Texas, a thousand acres. So we have we have more access to things now uh, than we did in season one. But it's still ultimately about the people. It's ultimately about Jesus yeah. and his relationship with each individual. So um, we're just trying to do as best we can.
0: Yeah, I do think it's kind of weird, the, the first century uh, Whataburger restaurants is gonna be awkward to work in, you know, with the Texas influence. Yeah, um, yeah,
6: there's work to kind of paint those out of the background. To <laughs> where you gonna
0: go with that. That's, yeah. if, that's if they don't get the fish again, you know? Yes, then yes. it's like, you know what? Just drive down the road, y'all. Uber it's, Eats it's is all... more popular we're, than ever
6: now, let's just do it.
0: We've got it, we've got it good, so, okay. Um, any other, and Jerry, maybe you can speak into this too, thoughts about, uh, this was actually one of our listeners asked us this on Instagram. Um, okay. After Jesus and the gospels, like any thoughts of like, what other part of scripture would you like to tackle or another storyline or, or a piece of that? What would that look like for you?
2: We've talked a
5: little bit about that, um, just because I'm curious where he's going to go with this. And, and my hope is that, You know, you either go to Paul in the Acts of the Apostles um, or Peter. Um, You know, he's such an interesting character in in this series, too. Um, There's so much, there's so many resources in the New Testament that... uh, you know, I could be long gone and, and in heaven and he could be my age and, and he could still be doing this. So um, I'm just hoping that uh, it does keep I going. just want to get through uh, season two, <laughs> get, two first. You're just
0: so. to I'm just going to put in a vote for Elisha and the She-Bears. I just want to see that play out and see, you know, what you would do with that. I'm just yeah. saying. No, you know, it would be fun. A
6: <laughs> little, little Easter egg in episode three uh, when, with Jesus and the children, mm-hmm. uh, which is, of course, covered in this novel as well. Yeah. Um, when we're doing, a, we show a montage of Jesus kind of getting to know the children better. And he tells the story of Elisha and the She-Bears. And so when you see Jesus stand up and roar, mm-hmm. he's acting out that story. And that's one of the interesting things about the show and about the book that we really try to do is we incorporate a lot of Old Testament stuff because they were storytellers and they did, that was their history and there was what they were drawing on. So, yeah, um, yeah we, we, we do flashbacks to the Old Testament uh, occasionally and, uh, in season one and season two. And we'll continue to do that.
5: There was a little uh, homage to me, actually, in that that little episode. Tell us. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised when I saw it the first time. Uh, when the kids were little, they used to sneak into my office, you know, if I was working and they'd hide under the desk and try to scare me or surprise me. And, of course, I could always hear them. They'd breathe or they'd giggle or they'd, you know. So what I would do is I would just make a bunch of embarrassing noises, you know, raspberries <laughs> and snorts and sneezes and this and that, and they'd laugh and I'd flush them out. And basically, Jesus does that in that in that scene,
6: and yeah, when uh, Abigail and Joshua from episode three are hiding and watching Jesus, he hears them, and then he starts making these crazy noises to get them to laugh and and uh, yeah, that was based on yeah based on my experience trying to sneak up on my dad growing up, so I was hoping to see that in the credits you know based on was,
0: yeah, oh, very fun, okay, so final question so for that listener who's listening right now, we know. The Bible is, because it says this of itself, it is transformational. It is living, it is active, it has the power to change your life. For that person that's listening and is like, man, you guys, I'm just trying to hold my life together. I'm trying to stay in my job, I'm trying to deal with my family, I'm trying to whatever. I don't know if I have time to add this Jesus to the mix, or I don't know if I can really trust him with my future. What would you guys say?
6: Well, I think that as the show and the book illustrate um, in many ways, you have no choice but to uh, to make room for, for Christ because um, you're ultimately, when you're focused on um, like what you just said, I'm trying to, to, to stay steady in my job or I'm trying to find my career or I'm trying to make this relationship work or whatever it is, um, those really are just temporal things. They're not... Um ultimately, what your heart's cry is. and um, every time that you rely on yourself or fellow human beings, there's going to be failure. and you're going to reach that point. you just will, even if you're successful financially, you will reach that crisis point. everyone does, mm. where you have to make a choice and uh, and and that's the moment where Christ is there. And in episode one and in you know in this book, um, you know when Mary's desperate and 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 trying everything she's trying things to make her feel better and jesus puts his hand on hers and and the first words of jesus's mouth in season one are that's not for you Mm. um and there's a reason for that um because jesus is transformational and he says um i'm going to take who you are and make you into someone who you are not yet Mm. and um that's what the show is that's what the book is all about and that's what the bible i think ultimately is 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 jesus makes us who we're not yet Mm -hmm. and um and that's what anyone who's listening is you know if they're experiencing that it's because they're they're trying to find answers in the in the now in the in the in, in human or in humans or in a career or whatever and uh and ultimately it's going it's going to create desperation there will be that crisis point, and uh Jesus offered it to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus chose to not give up his. His life mm-hmm. he offered it to Simon and Mary and Matthew and they chose to give it up and they will find themselves and and they found themselves far more joyful yeah than uh, than Nicodemus.
0: you may have plans but get ready for Jesus to interrupt your plans
6: yeah. we, we use the word intrude Jesus mm-hmm. is, is very intrusive He's <laughs> but in the best way
5: possible in the best way possible yeah, and I think the biggest mistake that young people especially can make is to think that left behind or the chosen uh, Either, either the series or the, the books are a substitute for the Bible. Mm-hmm. They're not a substitute. They're a catalyst to get you back into the Bible, or to get you there for the first time. Even today's Christian kids often think, "Well, I get it that our faith is based on this old book of parables and you know allegories and stuff, but is it really relevant today?" Mm-hmm. Uh, give it a chance. Mm-hmm. That's what we we don't want you to, to say. You don't need the Bible. You can read this. It's just a start. Get to the Bible. Awesome.
0: All right. Well, the book is now available. Focusonthefamily.com slash chosen. You'll find out everything about it there, how to get it, just released, all of that, the additional stuff that's going on around that. Uh, clearly, we've talked, Alice, about you are filming season two. Season one is available now, officially,
6: correct? Yeah, season one's been out for a while, and season two is coming out right now as well. So See,
0: we're, we're ready to go. So you can get both of them as companion series. We're going to have all the links available, uh, like I said, to get more information on that. But thanks, you guys, so much for this little behind-the-scenes look at really what this is all about and ultimately about Jesus, uh, the one that it's truly all about. So thanks so much. Thank you. In
4: your love, I'm
0: All right folks well we are finishing out the show by opening up our inbox and I get to invite fabulous counselor John Thorrington here to answer this question hey John hi good to have you all right uh, this question's pretty short um, but also a very good and comprehensive one so our listener says what suggestions would you give for building healthy friendships with the opposite sex after coming out of past sexual sin and when do you think it's a good time to start dating again
7: Such a huge question, and the assumption I have is that pornography really does hurt relationships. So, one of the things, just as a beginning point, would say I would think six months to a year before getting any romantic involvement would be a a good beginning point. Okay. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, And so, what you know, when you're when you're telling a person like, okay, what does it look like to, you know, move into healthy friendships? Like, how does that transition look? Because we've talked here at Boundless about like, okay, you go out to coffee you know, with someone, do you just start talking about porn or past sexual sin? Probably not. So give us a little idea of how this could look. uh, I would say be
7: very careful of that. If you're starting a dating relationship and that's one of the first things you say, that's probably going to scare the other person. Yeah. Uh, That's one reason I would say wait a while before you have that conversation because you want to make sure that you've got some of that behind you, that you're well into recovery. Mm -hmm. One thing that people don't think about is in the initial year of recovery, six months to 12 months out, it's very common for relapse to occur. And I would just like to encourage the guys I work with, make sure you've got that six months to a year well behind you, then your confidence level is going to go up. You can use that first year as a great opportunity to learn how to be in communication, how to make healthy connections with other people.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would imagine too, that even doing that kind of in a, on the group level is good to start rather than just going up to someone like, Hey, will you be my friend or accountability partner or whatever? That could be a little overwhelming.
7: I think that's a really good idea. And that's a (laughs) lot safer approach to start with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good thoughts there. So Awesome, well, thanks so much for weighing in on that, and hopefully it'll get the person you know started on i mean any good um putting you on the spot here, but good recommendations of books on friendship or just relational type of you know where someone could go with that
7: yeah i think a good place for the your listeners to go to would be to focus dot com and there's a lot of books and other articles I think that would they would find very helpful good that question
0: good that's awesome well thank you so much okay folks well that is it uh, for this week's show again we love it when we hear from you so write to us at editor at org and just tell us how you're doing and uh, what's new and again you know here we are in the spring of the year and we want to touch base with you and see how you are so write in and let us know Uh, otherwise i will see you around next week this is lisa anderson for the boundless show
2: The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org. Focus on the family.